This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to the Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best coaches in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is a show that we wish we had a decade ago. Now, this show is about you, and we're here to help you become the best man you can be in every area of your life. So make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here, as well as getting some killer free stuff by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you're new to the show, but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, check out the toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where we've got the fundamentals of dating and attraction, such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, even relationship management and breakups. That stuff is all obviously extremely important to your success, so make sure you get a handle on that as well. We've also got our boot camps and our live training running every single week here in Hollywood, California. Details on that at theartofcharm.com, or just give us a call or even email me, Jordan H. at The Art of Charm, and I'll tell you exactly what you need to know to get started with that. I'm looking forward to meeting all you guys here at The Art of Charm. Today we're talking with my friend Srini Rao, the host of Unmistakable Creative. I'm recording this one in a suit, actually. I just got a new suit from a brand called Not Standard, K-N-O-T Standard. I always do a little bit of work in new clothes to see if they're comfortable, and I gotta hand it to these guys. This suit is really comfortable. Uh, they didn't pay for this placement, but I know a lot of people are asking me where I buy suits. I guess I buy them from Not Standard, K-N-O-T Standard, and they can measure you on a webcam, which was huge for me because I basically did this in a hotel room, and then they got measurements, and then a suit came in the mail, and I'm really happy with it. Anyway, this one might be only for the entrepreneur, but I think there's something in it for everyone. We're gonna talk about the gap between where we are and where we think we should be. Uh, we're gonna talk about and how that bugs us and drives us nuts, how we can avoid it, uh, and approaching our work as artists instead of marketers, and what Silicon Valley knows about the value of play, the power of genuine curiosity, treating the world like a kindergarten classroom, and why, of course, comparing yourself to others is a losing battle, and that's something that I struggled with slash struggle with, and I know I'm not alone on that. And so enjoy this one with Srini Rao. We've talked about these ups and downs before as well on other shows where like Olympic athletes will go to the Olympics and they'll win gold medals and then they come home and like for three months, they're just on high. They're like super famous and there's money pouring in and then they sort of do these endorsement deals and it starts to become work. And then mm -hmm. people stop recognizing them and coming up to shake their hand at the grocery store or the restaurant, you know, actually charges them for their meal. And then after a while, they become just kind of like everybody else, except they're not getting ready to go to the Olympics and win gold medals. They're just guys who run a gym, right? Well, you know, it's funny. It, it actually goes back to the conversation you and I were having about the sort of internal locus of control, right? Like, it made me realize that even though I thought I had conquered this idea of being externally validated, I hadn't like my confidence was caught up in what would happen to the world, what was happening in the world around me because I had had so many successes in a row. It's that brain chemistry stuff, right? That we were just kind of talking about where it's like everything's on high, everything's going really well. And then it would be like if you made a million dollars a day, 
or one week you made a hundred dollars a day for that week, you'd be depressed as you'd fuck. be like, Oh my God, I'm a failure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? Sean Acor talks about this. He said, what happens when you have a success is that your brain changes the goalpost for what success looks like. And, you know, being 36, like to have all these things come together all of a sudden there's a, you know, I think that in some level we all have this sort of gap between where we are and where we think we should be. And all those things in my life, the girl was the last piece of that puzzle that represented I am finally where I should be. And that's, I think, what caused the tailspin. But it, I, so I went and actually had a brain chemistry analysis done. It turned out that like, I mean, like my GABA levels were one quarter of what they should be to be able to handle the kind of stress that, you know, happens in these kinds of situations. Uh, my serotonin levels were way low, like everything. And she said, this has probably been going on for some time and you just crashed. What's GABA, by the way? I mean, I think a lot of people know, but I think a lot of people have no idea. So, you know, I don't really feel qualified to speak about it from a scientific perspective. Probably somebody, you know, like Ben Greenfield, who I know you've had, is probably a bit more qualified for it. But the thing is, it, it is actually a um, chemical. I mean, they make supplements for it, but it's actually designed to be able to help you manage levels of stress. And the thing is that if you're deficient in it, your response to stressful situations is actually not what normal people's is. Mine was incredibly deficient. Like it's supposed to be 500 and mine was like a 100. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with diet. Some people actually naturally have, you know, neurochemistry that's a bit fucked up. Any number of things can cause that is what I've been told. But again, I don't really think that my advice on this is something you should follow. You should actually go right. do some research on it. It's interesting. I didn't know that there was a chemical that helped people deal with stress that was something other than serotonin and all that stuff but it makes sense it's like how some people who are quote-unquote crazy it's like the mm -hmm. grocery stores closed an hour earlier than they thought and they have like a friggin' breakdown in the car and yeah, yeah like, exactly. what is wrong with this person and i know that i can just imagine so many times where i'm like hmm this person might have a low gaba level or maybe it's me yeah because it's like why are, Why did you drop my sunglasses by accident into the cup holder and now they might be dirty and I'm going to make a big deal out of it or something, you know, and I'm like, yeah, exactly. who am I? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. It takes us back to that sort of thing where you can't separate the bad things. Like you could have all these good things, but the one bad thing just consumes you. That's sort of the problem I have where people go, ah, first world problems, bro. And I'm like, yeah, but doesn't change the brain chemistry involved. Like, no, not at all. I mean, it's, you know, Viktor Frankl talks about this. He says, you know, suffering is, is like a gas chamber. It's it's all relative. It just fills us up yeah. no matter what the suffering is that you're going through. Because I, I had a really hard time with that. You know, I was like, OK, how can I not be so caught up in things that aren't going right when so much has actually gone amazingly this year? I know some Silicon Valley entrepreneur type guys. And mm. one of my friends, Noah Kagan, he got fired from Facebook. Yeah. And, you know, that's a traumatic experience, especially now that everybody talks about it non-freaking-stop, right? Right. He's not doing so bad. I mean, he owns AppSumo. So, <laughs> you know, he, he landed on his feet pretty well. He's probably yeah. even better off just emotionally than, than if he'd stayed at Facebook. You know, there's a lot of argument for that. But I'm sure that, like, some guy in Africa being chased by a lion... Or, mm -hmm. or like having all these disease or like craziness happening around him, probably the same level of stress is that happens when you're walking into your boss's office or Zuckerberg's office, knowing you're going to get your ass handed to you. Oh, dude, I've, I've gotten my ass handed to me numerous times in jobs. I mean, I've been fired from damn near every job I've been at. So I, I get that. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Well, that sort of leads into what you're doing now. Tell us what you do. 
I host a show called The Unmistakable Creative, which is actually an asset in, in a larger media company that we're building called Unmistakable Media. Uh, you know, and our assets include an event called the Instigator Experience, the podcast. We will likely start getting into film and other stuff down the road. Uh, we started a monthly live event series called The Unmistakable Salon, where we're actually taking the entire podcast and putting it live in front of an audience and making it interactive. We did our first one as sort of a guinea pig to see, is this viable? Is it sustainable? Can we do it? Can we carry it out across multiple cities? Now, you know, whether it's monthly, whether it's quarterly, I think that the big thing there is that it was just, you know, hey, look, this is a really easy experiment to do. Let's find out, will anybody pay to come and watch me interview somebody? And it turns out they will, which was pretty cool. So you have this sort of umbrella when we look at you know media and we say, okay, our goal really is to showcase, curate, and connect some of the world's most interesting and creative people using various forms of media and in that process really shape a cultural narrative through media from one of real pain to one of change by showing these really just amazing stories uh, about people who have overcome incredible odds to go out and do really fascinating things in the world. I mean, you being one of them since you've been recently been a guest on the show. But it all, all kind of started when I graduated from business school in April of 2009. I didn't have a job. Uh, you know, the job market was terrible. There's no possibly worse time you could graduate. And so I figured, okay, you know what? I need a way to find a job that's creative. And I was watching all these kids who are half my age doing interesting things with social media. And even though I'd been the social media intern at Intuit the summer before, I didn't really know how to do anything. I just had a bunch of bullets on my resume that said I knew how to do things, but there's no tangible evidence of my skills. So I, I started, you know, playing around with different ideas. I started a website called 100 Reasons You Should Hire Me. And then when I couldn't come up with 100 Reasons Why Anybody Should Hire Me, I had to stop the website. Oh, no. From there, one thing led to another. I created my first blog. I started interviewing people just as an experiment to see what would happen. I mean, experimentation and curiosity probably is one of the sort of big themes behind the way I've done my work. And what started out as one interview eventually became a weekly series. Like I had no aspirations to start a big podcast. You know, I mean, like sure. I think probably right around the time you guys started. Uh, kind of like back then, it was like everybody was saying podcasting was going to die, and so it wasn't that I thought, "Hey, this is the next big thing." But something about it just intrigued me. And I had a day job, you know, eventually where I was working at this online travel company. So I, I would come home and I would work on this project every night. And eventually, you know, one thing led to another. The job came to an end, like most of my jobs have. I moved to Costa Rica. And when I got back, it, I knew it just was impossible because my body of work had gotten to a point where when I would go into a job interview, like the very thing that would get me into the door would be the reason they wouldn't want to hire me because they would say, we're looking at this and you don't look like somebody who needs a job and you don't look like somebody who's going to want to build a career here. And, you know, after a certain point, I was like, you know, I'm like, I've spent half my career telling people what they want to hear so I can get my foot into the door at a job that I know I'm going to hate. Maybe I should just tell them the truth and say, yeah, you're right. I'm going to leave the second I don't need you. And of course, that's led to some struggles and challenges. And then, of course, you know, as, as time has gone on, I mean, it's been a constant series of trying things that haven't worked, trying things that have failed. And ultimately, all that shaped up into the last probably nine months through a series of just crazy things. I self-published a book called The Art of Being Unmistakable, which of all people landed in the hands of Glenn Beck, who fell in love with the book. The book became a Wall Street Journal bestseller because I ended up being on Glenn's show. It sold thousands of copies in the span of a few weeks. Uh, we then rebranded the show because what we realized was that you know, what was then Blogcast FM didn't really make sense. The brand wasn't aligned with the content and it wasn't aligned with the audience because it was clear that the show was about a lot more than just blogging. But, you know, if you land on the name Blogcast FM, your thought is, oh, it's the podcast for bloggers, which it wasn't. You know, we were interviewing happiness researchers. So we sat down and we said, okay, what is the name of this show? And of 
course, I mean, if you've named things, you know how that goes. You know, my business partner, Greg, sent me a hundred different names and every one of them I'd reply back with a text saying, no, 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 no. And then he said, unmistakable creative. And I was like, that's it. And that's one of those things, you know, just instinctual. I know when something is right, I just know it. Like I walk into event venues and I can tell in 10 seconds, I'm like, we're not having the event here. I don't even have to walk in the door in some places. I could drive up and I, I can say, okay, we don't want to do the event here. Big creative projects, I think, unleash your inner Steve Jobs. But we had the event. And so what basically happened is what had started out as this little sort of idea for a podcast has now evolved into building a media company. You know, we're bringing on a, a director of business development. I mean, I, I have to say I'm very fortunate uh, to have met somebody, uh, a guy named Greg Hartle, who was actually one of the guys I interviewed, who took a, a strong personal interest in me. Uh, to mentor and to shape me into to what I have today. And, you know, he took us from being, you know, struggling and putzing along to being able to do all of this stuff in the span of a year. So, you know, in about in nine months, we've published a best-selling book, grown the podcast significantly, increased revenue by about 1,500%. But you can hear all these things on the surface and think, wow, these guys must be just living large, smooth sailing. And, and man, yeah, I mean, you know this as well as anybody. We still have a lot of work to do to get to where we want to go to get to that point of stability and security, because I think that's important. You know, as much as the, the online world perpetuates, you know, give up your security, sell all your shit and, you know, be a nomad. That's a, a dangerous narrative that puts people in situations that they can't get themselves out of. And then they're wondering what the fuck happened to their life. Well, I think it's sad because people send me letters and they're like, I want to do like what you do where you're like nomadic and you, does your business largely run itself now? And I'm like, one, I'm not nomadic. I'm in my apartment. You know, I work a ton. This business does not run itself. We've got like 19 employees and they're all busting their butts. There's a lot of people that go, oh, well, so-and-so has a business that runs itself. And they're the people who talk a lot about how they have a business that runs itself. And either they're just completely full of crap where their business, far from running itself, requires a ton of maintenance and there are other groups of people that say, oh, I've got a business that's largely like software service and it just runs itself. And then you talk to their business partner and they're like, no, he just doesn't do any of the work because he's in, totally incapable. We do it ourselves and we have a team that does it. But just because so-and-so is not working on anything doesn't mean the business runs itself. It just means that from his perspective, it does. You know, Jordan, I'll, I'll say something else. I mean, I mean, you guys have been at this for a really long time, right? Like yes. we see you as, as what you are today. And that's that's something that most people really discount because, you know, everybody's so impatient. You know, it, it's funny. It's really important that you remember that you're just at the beginning of the arc of your body of work. I'm like half a decade and we're just at the beginning. How crazy is that? I you know. know. I, funny because people go, you're like a podcast master. And I go and I remember because I wrote it down because I thought I would forget. At episode 250, which I just released this year with Robert Greene, I remember a couple of episodes after that going, I think I'm starting to get the hang of running my own show mm -hmm. and getting out good content. And, and people go, well, dude, you've had this show for 250 plus episodes. What are you talking about? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, but those are acceptable, I guess, to some people. Mm -hmm. And not to take myself too seriously, but if I'm looking at this as like an artistic endeavor, which I kind of yep. do... I don't think that the early stuff is good. It's just there. It exists. Mm -hmm. There isn't stuff like it. It's not my greatest <laughs> product. I'll oh, put it that way. Yeah. No, me too. And it, it's funny that of all people that you mentioned where that happened is with Robert. 
because, you know, his book Mastery is all about that. And I think that that's such an important thing. I mean, especially with all the interview based podcasting that is happening, I think that that that's something that I think has been neglected is the, the commitment to craft. Uh, which, you know, I mean, you guys do such a great job at it. Like I told you, I don't listen to podcasts. And generally, I, I started just kind of digging through yours. And I'm like, wow, okay, you guys really get the craft, which I appreciate. And I think that that's what is neglected. And again, that just takes us back to the conversation of how long are you willing to bust your ass with no potential external rewards? That's a great question, because I think a lot of people go, oh, well, and, and we've all heard about most new businesses are fail within the first three years. I think a lot of them fail because the idea is crap. But it's not mm -hmm. necessarily just that, and it's not necessarily just that the execution is poor. I think a lot of people just, especially yours and my generation, God help the generation after us, people go, well, I've been doing this for like four months, and I haven't even seen real results yet. And I'm thinking, okay, call me when you've been doing it for four years and you haven't seen quote-unquote real results yet. I think that patience is one of those things. And, and, you know, I mean, I'm guessing you've made sacrifices much like me. I mean, I, I know that you used to be a Wall Street attorney, and I'm sure you gave up a lot of money and a, a certain amount of security. I mean, I've done this at the cost of a lot of other things in my life because the end mattered so much to me and because I was so committed to it. And I don't think most people really want that. Like, it's those people who go to conferences and the conference becomes an escape from reality as opposed to an opportunity to change their reality. And this is fresh on my mind just because, you know, I was writing this morning for a speech. And the thing is, I, I am guessing there are probably some of your listeners who keep thinking it's the next episode that's going to give me the, the thing that I need to get me to where I'm going to go. You know, it's one more episode and then I'll be ready. One more episode and, you know, my life will be perfect, like whatever, you know, and they get addicted to information uh, as opposed to actually taking action. And I think that that's really, truth be told, I'll tell people, I'm like, I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. You know, I mean, like a year ago, I'm like, I had no business at all planning an event. I'd never planned an event before. I threw out a landing page and I was like, oh, I wonder if anybody will come. I wonder if any of the speakers will say yes. It was all a series of unanswered questions. And I think that where, you know, your ability to basically take action in the face of unanswered questions is actually essential to being able to accomplish anything of significance. Yeah, it's it's so funny because they see what you and I are doing now. And I was doing my taxes the other day and they were like, oh, we need to see some of the earlier tax returns for you, like not just the past two years, but the two years before that. So we're going back like four or five years and I just got all my tax returns together because I thought, why not have this all in one place? Mm -hmm. When I first started The Art of Charm, I made $24,000 a year. The year before that, I made $160,000 a year plus bonus on Wall Street. And I didn't wow. make $24,000 for one year. I made mm -hmm. $24,000 for like three years. Dude, I mean, I the, the amount of failed projects, things that didn't work, um, everything. I mean, I, I did a lot of things that honestly... Like, if anybody saw the results I was getting, it would have been the best advice somebody could have given me is, Srini, you should go get a job. Yeah, get a job. Yeah, exactly. To be fair, I was in Manhattan, so $24,000 a year is like $14,000 a year. But I mean... Elsewhere. Yeah, elsewhere. But okay, to be fair, my rent was paid, right? So that was huge. Otherwise, I just would have been homeless. And I didn't notice at the time, because we were having so much fun building the art of charm, that like, mm -hmm. we were still kind of in the honeymoon phase of like, oh, this will eventually work. And then luckily, when it started to really take a toll and we were like, wait a minute, we're still 
broke. This <laughs> sucks. You know, it started to look up. And it's probably not a coincidence that that happened, but how do we start to approach our work as artists and creators instead of just marketers? Because I think a lot of people, when they're looking at this as a marketing endeavor, we end up mm-hmm. with, and again, no names mentioned, some of these like podcasts in a can where it's like, oh, I'm going to read this article and then put like a link to some SEO engine thing and call that a podcast, do that every single day and churn a bunch of listeners and like hire a bunch of unwitting sponsors and Mm -hmm. like create quote unquote a business. And really you're like, it's negative value for everyone involved except for you. And it's, it's not fraudulent or scammy outright, but it really is kind of, you're trying, you're just trying to find the cracks so that you can slip between them and you're not actually creating anything of value. And I feel like that's not only bad for everyone involved as a whole, but it's got to be bad for your psyche, too, mm-hmm. to know that you're just bullshitting. Yeah, man, that's that's such a broad question. We could do a series of episodes on this question uh, just because there's so much here. But, you know, it, it's interesting. It, you know, again, I think it's really fitting that you mentioned Robert Greene because so much of it comes down to craft. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you an example of how I really started to see this as an artist. I was lucky enough to talk to to a guy who had written a book on accelerated learning, a guy named Josh Kaufman, and you may have had him on your show. Um, And it was about the first 20 hours of how we learn any new skill. And so I thought, you know, okay, let me go put this to work. Let me, let me try this. I'm like, I can spare 20 hours. Anybody can spare 20 hours. You know, if you've got 20 days, just an hour each day. And I thought, you know, what skill do I want to learn? So, you know, I've always sucked at drawing. I can barely draw a stick figure and the other thing is I, I said, you know, drawing is actually a, a skill that I could work on that requires minimal investment financially. So I thought, all right, cool. So I sat down, you know, I, I, I bought this book on Amazon, how to teach yourself how to draw in 30 days. And so I started sketching stuff. The first picture was of an apple, barely looked like an apple. Then I started, you know, sketching faces, you know, and every time I draw a woman, she looked like a man. I mean, it was it was a disaster. Uh, it was clear that I had no artistic talent, but the only goal that I had with that was to see if I could actually get better. Like, could I make visible progress from day one to day 30? So I started, you know, basically approaching it like I was in kindergarten all over again. You know, I mean, the, the stuff I drew literally looked as if somebody in kindergarten had drawn it. But the beautiful thing about that was it brought back that sort of childlike playfulness into everything that I was doing. Now, what's interesting about this is that I had no idea how much that would actually start to shape and influence everything I did from that point forward. Because what I realized is that exposure to multiple art forms is probably one of the biggest keys to really approaching your work as an artist. And where it came full circle was fascinating. If you've been to the Unmistakable Creative website, you know that probably one of the things that stands out the most about our site is how driven it is by the visual art. And so what happened was I saw my friend Sarah Steenland was one of our listeners and she was doing these doodles on Facebook every day. She was doing these really sort of clever comics that looked like they were fairly quick to whip up. I said, listen, I actually have an idea and I'm wondering if you might be willing to help us out with this. Would you be willing to draw a doodle for each interview? And instead what she came back with was the full face illustration of each person. So we started actually doing those for each interview when the site was called Blogcast FM and people were like, wow, this is really cool. And then when I got the first version of the unmistakable creative, you know, the icons that had stock photography and all this stuff. And and I took one look at it and my immediate insight was, I know what's wrong with it. 
it's got no art. I said, every icon needs to be visually illustrated. So we called a friend of ours in Germany who does this amazing artwork named Mars Dorian. Um, and even our about page, you know, I remember we were sitting like, what goes on an about page? And, you know, we came up with a list of things. We're like, why the hell would we write the about page? Everybody does that. Let's do the thing that nobody would think to do, which doesn't make logical sense, but is quite creative and interesting. And our about page is a cartoon that explains who we are. So I guess really the gist of it is exploring curiosity and playing with the things that might not seem like they have anything to do with your work, because those can lead to some really, really powerful things. Then, of course, there is this real commitment to saying, you know, I want to create things that are epic audience experiences, things that are so good that people can't help but talk about them. And I am going to commit to that. And I'm going to keep improving every single time we do something so that the thing that's interesting about, you know, when if you take an episode of The Unmistakable Creative, the entire experience goes beyond just the audio because you have these visual components. Like I see myself much more as an entertainer than a marketer. And so I always look to worlds outside of the one that we're currently in for for my influences because I realize it's it's in mixing these different art forms that I find the most creativity and the most ability to really think like an artist. And, and we can delve deeper into that. But that's that's a starting point. I'm looking at your website right now. I love the cartoony aspect. I think it helps that you have this sort of permeate the whole show. I guess I'll I'll ask you this: How you avoid the common trap of falling into looking at your work and as as an art instead of a marketer? Because I look at this again, at least very similarly to the way you do. I mean, even more, you'll look at some other guy who just started a show on iTunes like a year mm -hmm. ago. It's like he's, oh, I've got all these even more downloads than the Unmistakable Creative and da 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 and he's hardcore sure. marketing it. I feel sometimes like, crap, man. You know, if I'd focused on that more, I would have more money or I'd have more fans mm -hmm. or I'd have more of this and that. And some of that's ego, but some of it is like, hey, at the end of the day, I do have to live off of this and... This mm -hmm. person's making more, even if what they're creating is kind of crappy. How do yeah, you stop? How do you stay away from feeling like, man, I should switch fo focus here? It's interesting that you bring that up. There are probably hundreds of examples of exactly what you're talking about. And I think about this in terms of is that really sustainable in the long run? The other thing is, it's like everything you're doing and everything you're creating is. It's an artifact of your lifelong body of work. You're leaving these digital footprints behind. And this is how the story of who you are as a human being, you know, who you are as somebody who contributed to the world is going to be told. And I'm thinking about it in terms of wanting to build something for the span of a lifetime. You know, like you say, you know, legacy is more important than currency. And I think that those people are really focused on currency more than they are legacy. And the other thing is that I think the thing that really keeps you from getting into that trap, and I get the I have to live off of it thing because I, I mean, that's a struggle that I faced. But I also want to look at it and say, you know what, I am damn proud to have created this. Let's actually use another example that might make a bit more sense here. You look at sort of the heyday of Microsoft and Apple, right? Remember, like Steve Jobs leaves Apple, Apple becomes this sort of afterthought. But the fanatics, the people who loved Apple always stayed, they, they never left. And so Microsoft basically went into the business of effectively cloning itself and creating, you know, endless versions of, of, you know, whatever the hell it is. So they became a machine. They basically made things in a way that is, is like an assembly line. You know, it's, it's that great sort of quote that I mean, Steve Jobs once said, Bill Gates has no taste. And, you know, <laughs> Bill Gates even said, I wish I had Steve Jobs taste. So I think that, you know, it, it's interesting to look at that and you think, okay, well, you know, Apple went through that sort of, you know, dark period 
you know, here we are 10 years later. And I mean, all you have to do is look at an Apple store and you can see those Microsoft stores. In fact, there's a corner street corner in Portland where they're right next to each other. The Apple store is swarming with customers. It's full of life. It's full of energy. And the Microsoft store looks like a, a graveyard. I think that the, the thing that really, for me, I look at that and say, you know, which one do I want to build? You know, which one to me is, is the one that is worth building. And I think that it comes from longevity. It comes from depth and it comes from genuine curiosity. Uh, those are really the three foundational elements for it. And I feel that in the end, those are the people that are still going to be here while the other people won't stand the test of time, as we've seen in the example I just gave you. That is sort of the the solace that I take in it where it's like, you know what? I've been in this game for eight years almost. I've seen people rise and fall over mm. and over and over and over again. In a year, a lot of these sort of Mick podcasts will just be gone. Oh, Not even a year. They, they won't be here. I can promise you that. The hundreds that are starting with the you know this idea that there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Because one, I think they're doing it for the wrong reasons. I think it's like, oh, it's the thing now, right? And it's like, okay, well, that's a stupid reason to do it. And the other thing is that, you know, and then this is going to be, you know, the talk that I give in a few weeks, but I think that we're really in the infancy of this. And what's interesting is that we're confusing the medium and the message. You know, the medium is actually very cool. And I think that there's potential to do things with it that we haven't even thought about how to do yet because we're so sort of focused on looking at our heroes, our role models, and our predecessors. And, and you know, I, I said on Facebook the other day, if all you do is follow in the footsteps of your heroes, role models, and predecessors, at best, you're going to become a pale imitation. At worst, you're going to be completely ignored. And I think the latter outcome is actually much more likely. Absolutely. If you get the quote-unquote better outcome, that still sucks. Who wants to be a better imitation of something? Yeah, exactly. I mean, do you want to be better? or Do you want to basically do something that only you could do? And yeah. what's cool about this is that if you haven't really th thought about this. I mean, if we're talking just straight podcasting, I mean, we've got a way to mix forms of media in a way that we've never thought of before. And that's really cool. And, and I think that's where the next real breakthroughs in, in the world of podcasting are going to come from when people say, you know, what if I mixed visuals and audio? What if I did storytelling in a way that nobody has done it before? I mean, why do you think Radiolab is, is the success that it is? In fact, if you look at all the number one shows in iTunes, none of them are interview based. That's actually very true. Uh, aside from Nerdist, right? Yeah, yeah. And things exactly. like that. There's a few. And you're right, because nobody wants to be like Kirkland Signature brand cola right? Or yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Even RC Cola, like that has like a little cult following, but part of the reason I think a lot of people don't want to do it, one is it might not work. There's no guarantee that it'll turn out like you don't know what the output is going to be. It might blow up in your face. And two, it's a lot harder because, you know, the interview is sort of the low hanging fruit. It's like, hey, I'll just pick up a microphone and I'll start talking to somebody. But what's forgotten is that, by the way, it doesn't matter if nobody's listening and it doesn't matter if the person listening is like, wow, this sucks. Yeah, that's true. It's just kind of like, hey, I can do interviews and then I don't have to create my own content anymore. So how do we start to get our proverbial box of crayons back? Yeah, it kind of takes us back to the, the drawing project is one example of that. Part of it is just saying, you know, I'm going to create things and I don't care where they come from. Like right now I'm working on this this street photography project. I have no idea what it's going to lead to. I mean, it just it's this idea of creating things with no intent of an outcome in mind and just saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to play creatively. I'm going to see where these things take me. And it could come in any form. I mean, go out and sing, you know, go out and do improv. And you guys have mentioned that I know on some of your shows. I mean, all of these things are various art forms that just keep exposing you to 
creativity on a level that you might not otherwise get. You know, the other thing I would say is to shut down all the sort of inflow of typical information that you consume, blogs, podcasts, whatever. Don't unsubscribe to this show, obviously, or mine, but uh, <laughs> everybody but really, else, though, screw those guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Now back to the show. So really shutting down the amount that you're consuming, because I think that your insights actually are getting really clouded by this, the sheer volume of shit that comes into your head. And really when you do that and then you add into that some form of disconnecting, I think that you start to just naturally get that box of crayons back. I have certain habits that have just become, you know, kind of cornerstone to this. I write a thousand words a day. Most of it is absolute garbage. I really honestly have no goal other than to see the word count on the writing software hit 1000. I don't care if it's good in that Jordan, I will find pure gold every now and then. Like it's, you just keep planting different seeds. This is actually the way I wrote it this morning. I said, you know, you plant seeds. Some will bear fruit. Others won't even surface above the soil. Some will grow really well. Others won't. And your job is to nurture the ones that grow. In that way, not to be too cheeseball about it, but your work takes on a life of its own because it starts to evolve based on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. I, I like that. I mean, when we started the show, we started it for other people. And I did it for years, not looking at the show as a business itself. Even when we started the business, I didn't look at download stats until maybe two plus years ago, aside from when we first started. So there's oh, yeah. like a five year gap, maybe not quite that long, at least three to four years where I never even looked at my iTunes rank. I never looked at my download stats. And now that I am, it's a much more popular show. But mm -hmm. that's mostly because I'm focused on like promotion, promotion, promotion. But the craft of creating the content largely was what I worked on. You know, make sure I don't say um, make sure yeah. I don't breathe into the microphone or go, you know, and do all those things. Make sure the guests are high quality. Make sure I'm not mailing it in. Things like that. And that was an accidental way to make sure the content was top notch. And for guys out there who are listening, and, and just to go back on your earlier point, you're right. There's so much junk. Start looking at information and tell me if you agree with this, Rini. Start looking at information like you do with the stuff that you put into your body, like food. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can eat Cheetos every now and then and watch an episode of Jersey Shore, right? It's cool. You can laugh. I don't even know what the dumbest reality show on TV is right now, but Jersey Shore <laughs> is my latest example. If that's your guilty pleasure, fine. Just don't have it for dinner every night for a month because mm -hmm. if you do, you're going to start to wonder why you're talking in BuzzFeed and why you can't actually string a coherent sentence together when you try to write something. Because with all that input, if you're trying to create output, but the last book you read was some magazine that was in the checkout aisle of a grocery store, and the last thing you read online was a bunch of images that are animated about why the latest you know, scandal in politics is dumb. And it's like a bunch of pop stars saying whatever, you know, with subtitle. You know what I'm talking about, BuzzFeed articles, just garbage. When you put that into your brain, it affects the way that you think. And this isn't some woo-woo thing. I mean, there's scientific studies that show, you know, that your environment affects the way that you think. Duh, no big mm -hmm. surprise. So if you're listening to intelligent things, you're going to start to become better at that. And that's probably one of the few arguments that universities and schools actually have for, for making you better. But when you look at people who read a lot of intelligent things, People who read a ton, if they're one of those people who read a book like every single week and things like that, when they're talking, I'm just going, damn, these people are really next level smart. Whether they can apply yeah. it's a different story, but you know, they're next level smart. And, and it's very interesting to see 
how all that reading has affected their brain and all their thinking. And when you talk to people like Warren Buffett, which I haven't done directly, but when people know him, he's sitting there with stacks of books that he's going to read, just reads all day. He spends like eight hours mm -hmm. reading every day or something like that, just an insane amount. And nobody's going to say that that guy's not on top of his game. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, it's interesting you brought up the craft. I mean, I have a, a sort of different angle on the craft element of how I sort of learned that craft was going to be the key. It, it, it's so funny. It, like, even one of the things I hear from people is like, yeah, you should just do interviews because everybody says yes. And it's like, well, you know, one, that's not going to happen much longer if we keep producing crappy interviews. But one of the things I realized probably in the first year, like my sort of crazy idea was I'm like, oh, I'm going to interview like the most famous bloggers. They're going to tweet every interview and every interview will go viral. And of course, after 10 episodes, when that didn't happen, I was like, oh, yeah, how'd that work out for you? That was the big sort of, you know, profound realization. I said, you know, I have to make a commitment to continually get better and better and better as an interviewer. And to the point where now I got I got to sit down with a prominent national media person. And I'm like, you know, like, OK, you're just another guy I'm going to interview. And it's like this doesn't make me nervous anymore because I've worked on the craft. And you know what? I always think that it could still be better. You know, I, I look at it and say, okay, how do you make it better? Like, what did we miss? What threads did I not follow up on in that conversation that could have been more interesting? You know, what, where was there more opportunity for depth that I completely ignored? That to me is where the craft lies. So how do you stay curious? You know, it, it can be really tough. And for me, sometimes if I'm overworked and things like that, I have to work myself up into a proverbial lather of curiosity. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes I'm just like, oh, I've got to record this show. And usually I'm really excited, but maybe not 10 minutes before the show. It might be the night before. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, I'm going to talk to Srini tomorrow. We're going to have this really good conversation. And I want to make sure I ask him this. And I'm emailing myself things to add to the show notes and stuff like that. I've been sort of marinating overnight or whatever for the last few weeks. And then it might be like right before the show. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm still on the phone and I've got to pee. And, you know, <laughs> ugh. How do you stay curious even before that? Because there have been weeks where I'm like, I don't want to record anything this week. I'm over it. Yeah. You know, I, I get it. This in a lot of ways, I think this lies in our, our ability to disconnect, man. I mean, it really does. And there's so much evidence around this at this point. Uh, most people know I'm an avid surfer. Honestly, I mean, I texted you this morning saying, hey, Jordan, you know, what time are we recording? Because I need to get in the water. I think that you have to find these kinds of things that keep balance in your life that have absolutely nothing to do with your work. And whatever that might be for somebody, I mean, it might be yoga, it might be meditation, it might be surfing, it, it could be snowboarding. But here's something really fascinating. I would get out of the water pretty regularly. I surf at this place called Trestles. I looked at patterns and I, I noticed something really fascinating. Sometimes I would have this just epic session. I'd get out of the water with this just incredible calm and peacefulness and high. And then I would get out my phone and check Facebook and the high would diminish like instantly. On the times that I just sat there and said, you know, I'm going to go to the lunch place. I'm not going to look at my phone. I'm just going to sit here and revel in this. The high would actually sustain itself a lot longer. And strangely, it's in that sort of quiet place where a lot of your curiosity starts to come back and, and ideas come back. I mean, the source of pretty much all of my ideas is that time in the water. It's actually fundamental to my ability to create. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that the journeys of building what I have and the journey of surfing have almost been parallel. Like literally it's almost the same, same exact amount of time that I've been doing both in you know, almost identically parallel timeline. I read this somewhere else recently. There's a lot of new science, which I guess advanced managers of places like Google and a lot of these Silicon Valley companies have, have maybe known, maybe not known. And that creating that space for people to 
be artistic at work or play at work mm -hmm. is so powerful. It gets better results when you measure it on a bottom line. Okay, so you bring up Google and you asked how do we get our box of crayons back and it actually you know, reminded me of something I wrote on Medium a while back. Implement a 20% time policy, not just into your business, but into your life. If Google can implement a 20% time policy, what's to keep you from doing it? The, 20 the goal of the 20% time policy is to go explore things and projects that have nothing to do with your work. That's true, and it just seems kind of counterintuitive. Why would I want my employees spending a fifth of their time doing stuff that's not work-related? I mean, get to work. I'm paying you, right? Yeah. Again, you know, the thing is that that's where some of these breakthroughs and innovations happen. You're not going to get a very innovative idea by listening to Tim Ferriss on, you know, 60 different podcasts talking about the same thing. You know, not that there's anything wrong with Tim. There's probably a lot wrong with Tim, but that's not the topic <laughs> of the show. Yeah, that's a whole other story. But you get what I'm saying is that you're not going to find an innovation or a breakthrough in that. I think that the innovations and breakthroughs of things that you might have never thought to do, I always thought, I'm like, how could I mix surfing into an event? Like, and why haven't I done that yet? That's always crossed my mind. And it's like, okay, where, where else would I get an idea like that other than being in the water? That actually makes a lot of sense. And you're onto something. And of course, the rest of Silicon Valley is onto something. It's just very counterintuitive. Coming from a Wall Street mindset, it's like, oh, mm -hmm. we don't want our you know, employees doing stuff like that. Luckily, at the Art of Charm, I think people spend probably more than 20% of their time just doing <laughs> other stuff regardless. Yeah. So it's great, and we give people a lot of flexibility here. And, it, and it's kind of key because it goes hand in hand. We need our, our guys to and girls to recharge a lot because we take mm -hmm. on a lot of emotional energy from clients, both positive and negative, you know, during our live program. So I, get a, I give my coaches like weeks off every single month. Um, sure. Which seems like a lot, but I think when people come through boot camp and they go, oh my God, I'm so tired, you know, I can only imagine how the coaches feel. It's like, well, this is why they don't work, quote unquote, full time, because it's yeah. impossible. <laughs> Literally would not be able, your brain would melt. No, yeah. I mean, if we were doing instigator experience or any of our events, like, you know, on a monthly basis, I don't, I don't think it's sustainable. And I think we push ourselves. And of course, there is this pressure to do that because you're watching the world around you and thinking, oh, I'm behind. Of I course. look at the fact that you guys have built this wildly successful business and I'm like, okay, well, why am I not, you know, in San Francisco living it up and, and you know, hanging with my cat or my girlfriend's cat? Yeah. Uh, that's a dangerous trap to get caught in because then what happens is that you don't really look internally to see the gifts that only you possess. One of the things I've struggled with for a long time, and, and to some degree still do, is evidenced by this show. I'll look at Tim Ferriss and go, oh man, he takes like a month off every year, and you know everybody mm -hmm. loves him, and he's just like, and there's all this and that and the other thing, and, and don't get me wrong, I love Tim, that's why I took a pot shot at him five minutes ago, but, but like, I'll look at like Mark Cuban and go, oh man, a lot of that's, you know, he's smart, but a lot of that's timing, why isn't that? There's an almost infinite number of people given the amount of time you have in a, in a day, to compare yourself to and then feel bad about yourself. What I've learned over a long time is it one, doesn't matter, two, doesn't help you, and three, if you really wanna rationalize your way through this, if you get to know those people really well and you get to know, you know, I remember, again, the, the software guy, I know I don't even work, you know, my business runs itself and I just have passive income and now I just get to pursue passion projects. When you talk to people that are, close to them, and if you can get those people being super honest, you kind of find out that that's not really true, right? Whenever you compare yourself to other people, you're taking this unfair, overly critical version of yourself that exists only in your mind, and mm -hmm. then you're comparing it to this idealized version of somebody else, 
that, again, only exists in your mind. So you're thinking, this guy never works. He's on a beach all day. He's probably hanging out on a boat, and everybody loves him. And I saw him on TV, and he looked so happy. And meanwhile, that guy's looking at you going, man, this guy's got this thriving business. He's really passionate about it. He doesn't mind working a bunch during the week. I have this stupid software thing that pays the bills and nothing else, and I'm only happy when I'm on TV, right? I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. And, and you can't, the more time you spend doing that, the more you just poison your own well. Let me give you an example that, that I actually just read the other night. I was, I was reading, you know, Brene Brown's uh, Gifts of Imperfection, right? And this may be a, a pretty interesting example, especially given some of your listeners. It was like the average American is having sex 4.3 times a week. And you're thinking, well, fuck, it's only me that's not having, you know, sex 4.3 times a week. That's exactly kind of what you're talking about in sort of an extreme example, like you can't enjoy your life as it is when you're like that because your entire life is about what you don't have or what's missing. Right. Yes, that's a good point. And there are plenty of people uh, that spend their whole life doing that and they're miserable. Oh, I spent part of my life doing it. it. It makes you insane and you just are not a happy person because everything is based on some sort of external validation. You know, when you break up with a girl, I guess this is a very apropos topic, but then, you know, a few months later or a few weeks later, you're sitting around and you're going, man, she was so great and she smelled so good. Why did I break up with her? And then you call her and you're like, oh, she's fucking crazy. That's why. <laughs> you know what I mean? The only thing left after a few years are these like ideals of my breakups. I remember some of the more successful ones that I look back on now and it's like, oh yeah, she was really great. And she was so cool, and when it came to this and this and this, ah, but there was this one thing that I made sure to, like, burn into my brain after we broke up, which is that she is, you know, really mean to people who aren't X, Y, Z, or, like, she's really stingy, or, you know, she's really selfish in certain ways, and, and you kind of have to make that a mantra, because you keep getting back together with this person, or you keep thinking about this person, and it's idealized, and then you have to have something to like grab onto where you go, ah, but there's that. Yeah, you yeah, know, totally. And it's not the only reason you broke up, but it's the most easily articulated and the one you'll never forget because it's like very tangible that went, oh, yeah, but she was a cheating bitch or something, you know, something along those lines because otherwise you get sucked right back into those thought patterns or relationships or whatever we're talking about. The problem is our cultural media narrative is one of an insane amount of pressure to be something that you're currently not. It's easy to even compare yourself to the ideal that you've created in your own head for what mm -hmm. your business is supposed to be. And I found that like other people, even in our niche, are like, oh, yeah, I'm running an eight figure company. And you're like, damn, that's amazing. And then you'll talk to somebody who works at like the place that runs their payments. And they're not supposed to tell me this stuff. But my job is to get information about people and to network. Mm -hmm. So like, it's hard to hide stuff. And I'll be like, man, you know, I heard so-and-so is making like eight figures. And they're like, um, let me check on that. Um, that's mm -hmm. impossible. I won't tell you his actual revenue because it would get me fired, but there's no way because we're his primary merchant processor and he's only running this. So unless, you know, his YouTube sponsored ad videos are making him like $7 million a year, and given his YouTube rank, that would be impossible, then he's just lying. Yeah. And you're like, oh, good thing I didn't spend five nights last week staying up all night freaking out about how this competitor's creeping up on me or something like that. And just to find out that he's just a pretentious SOB who made it up, right? And so it's really easy to do that to ourselves in our own head where we're like, oh, you know, I wrote a three-year plan and I'm not there yet. 
well, where are you? Have you moved forward at all? If you haven't, then yeah, go ahead and light a fire under your ass. But if you've made a bunch of progress, but it's not quite where you thought you should be based on the daydream that you had three years ago, don't be mm -hmm. so hard on yourself and keep going. Yeah, that's a good way. That's a, that's a really, really good point. Is there anything you want to leave us with? Um, well, I would say, you know, visit the Unmistakable Creative. Uh, check that out. You know, we've got an interview with, you know, the man himself, Jordan, there, where he talked about some pretty interesting stuff. Uh, we've got happiness researchers, bank robbers, people who've spent, you know, years in prison, cartoonists. I mean, anybody you could think of, we've, we've had as guests on the show, some of who are just absolutely fascinating and inspiring people with amazing stories. Yeah, I dig it. I d checked out the one with the, the bank robber. There were some interesting gems in there. And yeah. I like the fact that you can get people with really interesting stories to go, wow, I've never really talked about this, but dot, 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 yep. dot, dot. And it's like, yes, that's the juice. Exactly. So I appreciate what you do. And you're right. The craft is what it's all about. If you're interested in listening to something that's just well done, I would say the unmistakable creative is great for that because you won't notice how fatiguing it is to listen to bad podcasting <laughs> until you've heard a couple of good ones. And if this is the first episode of our show that you've heard, I hope that we've met that bar. But you know what I'm talking about, Serena. You listen to a bunch oh, yeah. of podcasts and you're like, I didn't realize how difficult it is to listen to other people talk about this crap for so long. It's not doing it for me. Mm-hmm. So totally. when you hear somebody who really cares about the art of podcasting or the art of creating a good conversation, then then you'll really appreciate the unmistakable creative. So thanks so much for your time. And I will look forward to seeing more from you and your company as you make yeah. it. Yeah. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you. Excellent show. Serena always brings his A game, which I really appreciate. Talk about a guy that really digs the craft of creation and podcasting itself. I really, really dig it. I think there's a lot more in here than just for entrepreneurs. I do think maybe it has to do with us as creators, but I think everybody can agree that there's a little element of a lot of this in any job or any creative endeavor that you do. And that gap between where we are and where we think we should be can really kill us, sap the life out of what we're doing. And keeping that genuine curiosity is really where it's at to keep ourselves motivated and moving forward. And comparing ourselves to others, anytime where we're really in that headspace, we're not creating as best we could be. And that's a losing battle for you. And it's a losing battle for your fans and a losing battle for anybody that consumes the work around you. And even for your family and friends that have to deal with you not being at your best. So I hope you guys enjoyed this one as much as I enjoyed recording it. And I'll see you guys next time. Solid show as usual, if I do say so myself. Show feedback and guest suggestions. We rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let us know at jordanh at theartofcharm.com. Bootcamp details, that's our live training at theartofcharm.com. And that's also where you can find links to us on Twitter, Facebook, and other social media. If you're listening to this but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher, then that needs to change. Getting our shows delivered free to your phone or computer is the best way to make sure you don't miss anything. You can do that by going to iTunes and searching for the Art of Charm podcast or by going to theartofcharm.com slash iTunes and clicking subscribe. That's it. You guys can also help us. If you subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher, give us a five-star rating and write something nice. We'll love you forever. Just go to iTunes.com slash theartofcharm and it'll take you right there. When you write us a review, it not only makes us feel proud, but it helps keep us in the ranks so that other people who can use this information can find the show more easily and get the credible advice that they need. It's also the best way to support the show other than purchasing training from us. So tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week, go out there and get social, and leave everything better than you found it. 
Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com.